Hello, everyone, and welcome back to yet another episode of the Alternate Oscars. I'm your host, Gabe Warren, and with every episode, I, along with a special guest, will be celebrating and awarding our favorite films of each year, starting in 1928. We'll discuss our brief thoughts on each film we nominate and comment on the actual Oscar year and some fun details on the ceremony. A few rules we always follow. We will be strictly following the reminder list of eligible releases. Today, oh, um... Those can be found on the website and the Oscar goes too. The amount of categories will also be changing and evolving over time. This is sort of tied to the Academy's evolution of the time. Uh, my guest today is going to be um, returning guest, James Brown. Um, welcome back to the show, James. It's um, I'm excited to have you on here again. Yeah, thank you for having me, Gabe. I love sitting down and talking Oscars with you. So, in general, how are you doing today? How's your day been? It's been good. It's been a, a busy day for me. I'm in the midst of a, a master's program, and it's kind of winding down in the next couple of weeks. So, it's been a busy time, and uh, talking about movies is the perfect distraction. Yeah. Um, I've just been so caught up in, like, college stuff. I'm planning on, like, some college assignments, um, just applied for a university, um, have to do my taxes, you know, all that adult stuff. Yeah. Uh, so today we're going to be talking about the films of 1954, and the good question that, um, I, I always ask this question, what were your, what were your favorite films from this year that were not eligible for um the academy awards this can be any film released in 1954 that was not um was not um eligible for the 27th ceremony yeah there's some great films that weren't eligible in 1954 i think most of them become eligible later on uh, especially some of the international films um, but just off the top of my head, I think one of the biggest ones I'd love to have talked about today is Fellini's La Strada, which would not get uh, American release until another two years after 1954. Um, I also really loved Godzilla. It was one of my favorite movies from 1954, and I thought the way it used special effects was so genius, and just kind of the whole pacing of the monster element and uh the way the godzilla the monster is introduced into the narrative and it's it, i thought it was just a masterful monster movie uh that i'd love to talk about um but perhaps i don't know what year that became eligible actually do you know um uh which film godzilla oh i don't know yeah um and then just two other quick ones uh the divided heart was a, a british movie um, with, uh, I believe it's um, Cornell Borchers and Yvonne Mitchell, who won the BAFTA that year. Um, I think they gave two of the best performances of 1954. Uh, it became Oscar eligible in the following year. Um, but either one of those two ladies would have won for 1954 if they were Oscar eligible for me. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, the one final big one, Seven Samurai. Kurosawa's Seven Samurai. Yeah, that's a great one. Yeah. So between those four, La Strada, Godzilla, The Divided Heart, and Seven Samurai, there's a 
some some great films from 1954. I guess I'd have to go with all those. Um, I don't know if I've seen the divided part, but the other ones that you mentioned are great. Yeah, and it's all uh, international films, interestingly enough. Yeah, yeah. The 50s was kind of the decade of international films. Yeah. So I guess now we can head into our into the ceremony proper. And as usual, we um, start with the last category, special effects, and the first best picture, and we take turns announcing our nominees with the guests going first. So would you like to take it away with special effects? Sounds good. I I think the Oscars only had three nominations for best special effects that year, if I'm correct. Um, I only have two of those represented in mine, and they are 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea and the creature feature Them. Uh, both really uh, inventive use of special effects, and I think what's so remarkable about them is how well they hold up even though we're not necessarily convinced by the special effects in the way that we would be cgi special effects where kind of realism is the main goal the special effects in both those films them and Twenty Thousand leagues under the sea they they work for the time and what the technology was was affording um, and also just in the sense that they are practical effects, right? Like, I, I, I don't know if they're, like, puppets or people in costumes. I don't, I don't know the particulars of it all. But it's what's so amazing is how the practical effects are so well integrated into uh, their environment. And we don't almost, we don't even question the realism of it because it does come off as so authentic. Uh, so those are my two nominations, Them and 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. Nice. Um, those are all great choices. And as you said, they are fairly revolutionary in terms of special effects. And an, an example of just the medium continuing to innovate throughout the decades. So. Um, my nominees are 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, The High and the Mighty, and Death. Um, was 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea and Death? Um, everything you said, I can apply um, here. And The High and the Mighty is a pretty bad John Wayne movie and the um, predecessor, and like the godfather of the disaster movies of the 70s, but... Okay. And good special effects. That's uh, I think that's a really inspired choice for special effects. For nomination. Good. So next we have best film editing. Best film editing. Okay. So my nominations for best film editing of 1954 are uh the earrings of Madame De. Johnny Guitar, On the Waterfront, Rear Window, and The Vanishing Prairie. Um, all different uses of editing, I'd say. Um, just to speak briefly, I think what, what's so remarkable about the earrings of Madame De is just kind of how everything is weaved together. Like there's some sequences, I'm thinking of the famous waltz sequence uh, where she falls in love with uh, Vittoria De Sica. 
Um, I can't remember his character's name. Um, just, yeah, and the way everything kind of flows and they're dancing and the environment's changing around them and their costumes are changing. And just kind of throughout the whole film, there's really genius sequences like that. Johnny Guitar is, is remarkable in a different way in the sense that the editing complements the pacing of the film. So we kind of get these long shots that last a long time and, and it, it helps just kind of, um, pace the story. I think that's what's so remarkable about the, the editing of Johnny Guitar. No shot is longer or shorter than it needs to be. It's all in service of telling the story and letting the actors um, let their dialogue unfold naturally. On the Waterfront, um, also a little different than the other two in the sense that the editing really complements um, the narrative and emotional momentum of the story. Um, and I think what makes so, the film so exciting um, is largely in part uh, due to the editing. Um, yeah. Uh, next would be Rear Window, which, of course, Hitchcock was just a master of editing, and you can't have suspense without good editing. And I think it speaks to how, how long the film has endured as a masterpiece of suspense and of the thriller genre. Um, that speaks to the editing. That's all due to the editing, the way he looks out the window and his eyes are kind of roving across the different windows and the camera's following it. And when the person's in the house, we get like the um, kind of veiled shots in the darkness and it's all just pieced together perfectly. And then finally, kind of an unconventional choice, The Vanishing Prairie, which is a nature documentary. I think it even won Best Documentary in 1954. Um, and just the way all these like raw footage is, is pieced together to kind of create this really thrilling narrative. I'm thinking too, in particular, of the section with like, um, oh boy, it's pretty bad. They don't, they're not moles. They're like the prairie dogs and the whole, the whole bit with the prairie dogs and just the way it's all pieced together, all these kind of, seemingly unexciting uh, shots become this very exciting story of, of the prairie and in this one particular instance, uh, the prairie dog. So those are my five choices. Nice, those are all inspired choices. Um, I don't think I saw The Vanishing Prairie, but I should at some point. Yeah. Um, so my nominees are Forbidden Games. Johnny Guitar, On the Waterfront, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, and Rear Window. With um, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, it's that classical um, big budget adventure editing that uh, I guess there's just a charm to it. And sort of old-fashioned sensibilities. And with Forbidden Games, um, it's very intricate and subtle. Just this haunting drama and Johnny Guitar, everything you said. Um, and then On the Waterfront, it's just so tightly constructed. And with Rear Window, a director really is only as good uh, is often um, only as good as his editor, and thankfully George Tomasini is just a master at his craft. 
I, re I really love that you found room for Forbidden Games because that was totally on my short list. Um, and it is a beautifully edited film. So next we have Best Makeup and Hairstyling. Yeah, Best Makeup and Hairstyling. Um, my choices, I only have three. Um, they are uh, Carmen Jones. Um, yeah. I don't know <laughs> how to elaborate on that. It's just such a rich production across the board, I found. Um, yeah. And just kind of how the makeup reflects kind of like the two, like there's a lot of different, um, like there's the military base and there's kind of the scenes that happen in the streets and just kind of how the makeup of, of, of all the different characters in their different settings kind of very naturally, it's a very natural use of makeup. I think that's what makes it work so well. And, and hairstyling. It's this big musical, but the makeup and the hairstyle is not necessarily big. It just very much complements um, the characters and their setting. Uh, my other choice is uh, Seven Brides for Seven Brothers, um, which is problematic as a movie, but I think as a work, as a, as a production, um, it's, it's quite exceptional. I have a lot to say about the costumes as well, but I think part of what makes that movie work is um, the presentation, the way those characters are presented to us um with their you know their um i don't know how you describe it like uh their rural their their mountain woodland life um and just kind of yeah every every brother every wife has their own unique look um and that's that is part of the makeup and hairstyle and then uh my final choice on the waterfront which um there's a lot that happens like each character has their own distinct look and I'm thinking too of just kind of the 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 physical abuse that uh, Marlon Brando experiences in the movie, and how um, the makeup reflects that with like the bruises and and blood and and whatnot. Uh, so those are my three choices: Carmen Jones uh, on the waterfront and Seven Brides for Seven Brothers. Awesome, those are all great choices. Um, the three I went with are Robinson Crusoe, Seven Rides for Seven Brothers, and A Star is Born. And with Robinson Crusoe, they had to transform Dan O'Hurley um, into this um, survivor of the islands. And then Seven Rides for Seven Brothers, like you said, it's problematic for a lot of reasons, but it's just such a well-crafted production. It's got the MGM machine, and then the stars born. Everything to make Judy Gar everything they do to make Judy Garland look absolutely perfect. Yeah, those are great choices, and I feel foolish for not thinking of them. <laughs> Especially Robinson, so that's a really good call. Yeah, and you're right about a star and how Judy Garland has so many different looks in that movie. I like I like how it's kind of difficult to find like the obvious prosthetic turn a a list celebrity actor into this historical figure. It's refreshing, and we have to look to the more subtle work.
that's more focused on making yeah. glamorous movie stars look amazing. Yeah. So next that's we have, website. yeah. So next we have best sound. Sound. Um, yeah, I have, oh, apparently my internet connection is unstable. Can you hear me okay? Yeah. I can hear you. Um, so best sound, my, uh, my five choices for best sound. Um, and maybe just to speak generally, I'm not an expert on sound. Um, so a lot of these you'll see, um, I feel almost basic reading these because a lot of them incorporate music. So just kind of how the music is edited into the soundscape of the film. Um, and then kind of the other ones are, um, uh, they lend themselves naturally to inventive sound design based on their location, which for both of them is at sea and just kind of the sounds of the sea and um, the sounds that you'd hear from a ship um, or on board a ship. And then kind of my final choice um, doesn't really fit either of those categories. Um, maybe I'll talk about it when I get there. So my five nominations are 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, The Cane Mutiny, so those are fitting the, uh, the, the Navy at sea soundscape. Uh, Carmen Jones and A Star is Born, which both kind of fill that musical space, um, how the music is integrated into the sound design. And then finally, Rear Window. Um, and just kind of what's so clever about Rear Window is um, it's, a, it's, it's not a very dialogue-driven movie, right? Like, it's very much based on visual observations. And the sound is so brilliantly used to complement our visual observations. And even sometimes when we can't see what's going on, we kind of are alluded to what's going on based on the sound design. So those are my five choices. Nice. Those are all good choices. Um, my nominees are The Cane Mutiny. The Glenn Miller story, On the Waterfront, Rear Window, and A Star is Born. I think the Glenn Miller story for being the sort of uh, musical biopic that often won in this wondering this time, it does a fairly effective job. And then the Kane Mutiny has its bomb explosions on the waterfront, all the punches and physical abuse Marvin Brando endures. It's all captured through the sound, and then A Star is Born, a big, lavish musical, and then Rear Window is very intricate with the sounds it captures, especially when it's when our lead characters can buy into an apartment. And even just at the end when he's like taking the pictures in the dark, and it's so effective just because of the sounds that we hear. Yeah. So next we have best costume design. Best costume design. Um, so my five choices. I'll, I'll go one by one, but I think um, kind of why they're here is very obvious to anyone who's seen these movies. Um, they're very rich, very rich costume designs. So 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, in particular, I'm thinking of just kind of like the underwater outfits they had to design um, for that movie. 
And of course, just how authentic all the other like uh, uh, James Mason's like Captain Nemo, his like captain outfit, and every character's every character's look um, complements them. Uh, the barefoot Contessa kind of feels like a basic choice um, because of all like the gorgeous gowns that Ava Gardner wears. Like that movie is not a great movie, I don't think the barefoot Contessa, but I think what makes it great is its aesthetic. And that's in large part to the costumes that are on display. Um, the earrings of Madame De. I do believe this was the only nomination that this film received at the 1954 Oscars, which was for costume design. And kind of the same as the Barefoot Contessa, where the gowns that Madame De wears are stunning. And I, I can't quite place the film uh, in its the year in which it's set but it's it's a period piece um and and just the way that period is is evoked through the costumes especially with like the charles boyer character and like his his like capes that he wears his like admiral's outfit uh really great costume design really lush production throughout that whole film actually uh gate of hell um which i do believe actually won at the oscars um incredible incredible costume design um the way it has, uh, I think it's the end. You're cutting out, James. Things where it's like it becomes a character in the film itself. Uh, just the costume design there. And then, of course, Seven Brides for Seven Brothers. Um, going back to what I was kind of saying before, where each character, and there are many characters, there is seven brothers, and there are seven brides for each of them, or one bride for each of them. And just each character has their own unique look, um, their own unique color, the way each character... James, are you there? I'm here. Can you hear me? Yeah. Perfect. Do you need me to repeat anything? Um, you're fine. Um, just one second. I'm gonna I'm gonna get my water bottle. Okay. So yeah, those are all good choices. Um, for my nominees, I went with the earrings of Madame D. I'm not the earrings of Madame D. I'll read that. 
Gate of Hell, Rear Window, A Star is Born, and Sabrina. Sorry for my cats in the background. I don't hear anything. Okay. Good. But cats are always welcome. <laughs> I'm beside my cat right now. <laughs> yeah, um the areas of Adam D um are pretty self explanatory. Like all the Garbo S gowns that um Armada gets to um wear. And then Gate of Hell one, the color costume design and deservedly so. Rear window, everything Grace Kelly wears. And then the Star is Born, everything Judy Garland wears. And Sabrina, everything Audrey Hepburn wears. It's great gowns, beautiful gowns. Edith Head Supremacy. Edith Head Supremacy. Who can't be on board for that? Um, so next we have best art direction. Okay. Best art direction. Just scrolling through my list. There it is. Okay. So best art direction, I have the Barefoot Contessa, the Earrings of Madame De, Executive Suite, Gate of Hell, and Rear Window. And maybe just to speak really briefly, the Barefoot Contessa is again as i kind of said before it's not a great movie but what makes it great is its aesthetic and and part of that is its costumes as i said before and the other part is kind of the art direction and just the colors that are used to to design the sets and the fabrics that decorate the set and and all those things there's so many clever decisions that went into the uh design of of that film and, and it pays off in a very rich, very lush, very, yeah, very, very sensuous almost uh, production design. Like it, you can almost feel that movie. It's just so elegant. Uh, the Earrings of Madame De, again, it's a period piece, the way the, way, um, the, the sets evoke the period, the ballrooms, uh, the, the chamber rooms. It's perfectly authentically well done. The opera boxes. Executive Suite might seem like a strange choice, but I think what's so great about Executive Suite is, I'm going to be using the word authentic a lot, I think, for this section, is just the authenticity. Like, they are just in, like, office boardrooms and meeting rooms and sitting at desks and, like, long meeting tables. But it, it it's it's so authentically evoked that again to say this cheesy phrase again it becomes like a character like you it's like these boardrooms kind of take on a life of their own like they they become like clinical and kind of like threatening almost or or you know it's it's uh, very very simple um art design uh with huge consequences for how we receive the film uh, Gate of Hell is kind of almost the opposite of Executive Suite, where it's a very rich production design, and um, we get that historical Japanese period uh, really authentically recreated, and and just the colors again that are used. 
um, the way the sets are decorated. Uh, it's a really, really, really lush production. And then kind of going back to the executive suite uh, rationale, Rear Window, where it's kind of just like one set, but it's so, so well constructed and it does everything that Hitchcock needs it to do. Um, yeah, who would have thought that just an, an, the face of an apartment building could, could carry so much cinematic uh, wonder, you know? Yeah, definitely. Um, this was a great year for production design, like so many choices I could have done with, but I ended up going with 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, On the Waterfront, The Earrings of Madame Da, A Star is Born, and Sabrina. Um, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea and On the Waterfront were the winners this year. Um, the Earrings of Madame Da. Um, again, evokes those um, Garbo melodramas so well. Um, Stars Born, just the lavishness of it all. Sabrina, it all looks fantastic. I'm not sure there's much I could say that could add more. One of the things I love about Sabrina is just kind of the main estate that Sabrina's family lives on and like the tennis court and kind of the, the terrace and it's all really uh, cleverly uh, designed. So next we have best um, color cinematography. Did you separate color and black and white? Yes, yes I did. One. Okay. Uh um, do you want to start and maybe I'll, I'll jump in. You can just list your nominees and uh, okay. your nominees. Yeah. So the five I have, I combined, uh, black and white and color and they are the barefoot Contessa, uh, executive suite, gate of hell, Johnny guitar and on the waterfront. And I think why all five of these, um, make really wonderful cinematography nominations is because of again the authenticity <laughs> for the most part most of these authentic applies um like executive suite just the way um those boardrooms are lit you know it's it's such a drab environment and it, it really comes to life through through the lighting through the the way it's captured um likewise with gate of hell it's a very very specific um uh, time and place that's being captured and the way the colors are are lit like it's such a it's such an aesthetically pleasing movie and and you're gonna you if you know correct me it's they use some technology like the kodak company developed some technology uh to film a, a gate of hell and you can tell you can tell that effort was put into capturing this film in a unique and vivid sort of way uh same with johnny guitar it's there's like the whole Western uh, scope of it and, and the way those Western panoramas are captured is really beautiful. Um, same with On the Waterfront, a uh, very specific time and place. Um, the docks of, is it New York? It's pretty bad. I don't know what city they're in. Uh, the docks of some city, New Jersey. Um, 
yeah and and we do get a lot of different nuances in in on the waterfront in the lighting like i'm thinking of carl malden delivering that mo monologue in the in the church when it's like there's kind of just like that beam of light shining down on him uh and then the other one that i didn't speak to was the bear I don't know. I don't know. Um, sorry, you cut out for a moment. Sorry about that. Oh, no worries. Um, here's my cat background. Here's my... Mm. <laughs> um, so my nominees for best color cinematography are 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, Gate of Hell, Johnny Guitar, Rear Window, and A Star is Born. Um, I won't go to elaborate, uh, elaborate too much for them, but, um, my nominees for Best Black and White Cinematography are The Earrings of Madame Duh, Euro 51, On the Waterfront, Right in Subblock 11, and Sabrina. So next we have best original song. Best original song. Um, I only have four nominations for this, um, just shy of the five the Academy allows. Um, they are Behind the Mighty from Behind the Mighty. Um, it's not a remarkable piece of music, but it complements the film well. The Man That Got Away from A Star Is Born, Judy Garland belts the life out of that song. It's an incredible build. There's a lot of momentum in that piece of music. The the bluesy, jazzy style of it. It's an incredible composition. Three Coins in the Fountain from Three Coins in the Fountain, uh, which isn't necessarily uh, a remarkable piece of music, kind of as I was saying about the High and the Mighty, but it complements the film very well. It's, it's very swoony and very romantic and wishy-washy, and it works well for what the film needs it to be. And then finally, Count Your Blessings instead of Sheep um, for My Christmas, which is, it's, it's just a staple, right? <laughs> like that song has endured since 1954. And if that doesn't speak to the quality of, of the music, then I don't know what does. And I think kind of why it has endured, and maybe this fits for some of the other ones too, is the simplicity of it, right? Like it's a very simple melody, it repeats itself, and musically it's not very demanding of us. It's just like a very light, easy listen. Yeah. Um, so my nominees are Cotton Blessings and So Sheep from White Christmas, Hold My Hand from Susan Slept Here, Johnny Guitar from Johnny Guitar, 
lonesome polecat from Seven Brides for Seven Brothers and the man that got away from Stars Born. My um, asterisk with um, lonesome polecat is I don't know if it, this. I have heard that this there was an original composition for Seven Brides for Seven Brothers, but I'm not sure which song it is. I think it's this one, but I'd have to check. So just insert any would whatever was the um, original composition for Seven Rise for Seven Brothers, basically. Basically take it with a grain of salt. Um, so next we have best original score. Okay, best original score. Um, yeah, so my choice is for best original score. Uh, Carmen Jones, which I think counts as best original score. It's at least an adapted score. I might be fudging the rules on that one. Uh, Forbidden Games, just the beautiful guitar melody that's transformed throughout the whole film. Genevieve, which is not a great movie either but it's a very fun and light movie and the score reflects that which i think is great it's a very whimsical score for a very whimsical little film um i can't think of the instrumentation they use but it is very like bright sounding kind of percussiony type instruments um and it's just a lot of fun a star is born obviously just has so many incredible ballads and and instrumental numbers so A Star is Born is included in my nominations. And On the Waterfront, which just, there's such an, uh, there's such an epic emotion to that film, like just the way everything keeps moving forward and the stakes keep getting higher and higher. And, and the, the score is there, the score is ready. The score says, I know what you're doing, film, and I'm here to help you with that. So those are my five. Nice. So I went with Genevieve. Johnny Guitar, Magnificent Obsession, On the Waterfront, and Rear Window. Um, so yeah, um, not to get too spoilery, but Rear Window, Franz Waxman, Genius, um, On the Waterfront, Lin Leonard Bernstein. I think this is the only film score he did. I'd have to check, but I'm pretty sure this was the only film score he did. Yeah, I don't know and about that. That's interesting to know. Yeah. Frank Skinner's work with Douglas Sirk is just amazing. And Victor Young's work on Johnny Guitar is just one of his great Western themes, along with Shane. If Magnificent Obsession was worthy of any Oscar nomination, best score absolutely fits the bill. And and the score for Genevieve fits the movie very well. Um, so next we have best cartoon short film. I did not prepare a category for that. I apologize. Um, I'll just go over my three and yeah, let's hear my winner quickly. Um, my nominees are Pigs is Pigs, Sandy Claus, and When Magoo Flew. And my winners were good flu. I was just lazy and selected three of the Academy. Five, I think. I didn't have much time, so she saw those three. Um,
Um, so next we have best international film. Okay. I did not prepare best international film either. <laughs> I'm not going to lie. I was going off of the categories we used in 1936 and the categories had totally expanded from 1954 or by 1954. Um, do you want to go first and I'll just hit you up when I'm done or when you're done? Yeah, go ahead. Um, do I do I say my nominees? Yeah, yeah, you go first, and I'll just get my. Okay. Ready. Um, my nominees are La Strada from Italy, A Lesson in Love from Sweden, and Seven Samurai from Japan. I did not know those were Oscar eligible that year, and that is wonderful news. Um, I just include them for international. I just include them for um international film. I include them for other categories when they're officially eligible. I just presume they would have been eligible for at least this had the category existed at this time. Yeah, well, I know La Strada for sure. It won in 1956 at the 1956 Oscars. Yeah. So I wonder if it would also have been included in 1954 because they did do that sometimes. Like I think, um, I I I some things I didn't think entirely through. Admittedly, yeah. Well, that's okay. I um, will I will reflect all those nominees back to you. I think those are great choices. All right. Um, but the five I had um, for 1954, not considering um, any eligibility rules. Um, like just films released in 1954, uh, my best uh, international film lineup was, sorry, I just can't find it at the moment. Um, uh, they were uh, uh, The Divided Heart, Godzilla, La Strada, uh, and Seven Samurai. Those were my four. Yeah. Nice. Um... So, um, my nom. Oh, oh, sorry. Um, next we have best adapted screenplay. This I am prepared for. <laughs> so my five choices for best adapted screenplay. First of all, just want to say the amount of eligible adapted screenplays in 1954 is off the roof. I don't think I've ever had such an embarrassment of riches choosing five adapted screenplay nominees. It seems like just every great film came from another source and, and the screenplay was a part of that film's greatness. So the five I decided on were The Cane Mutiny, The Earrings of Madame De, Executive Suite, Johnny Guitar, and Rear Window. Nice. Um, my nominees are Forbidden Games, Johnny Guitar, Rear Window, Sabrina, and A Star is Born. I think uh, A Star is Born is a really good addition in there because I, it depends on who you are, but I think the Judy Garland version is one of the standout versions of that, of that film. Um, so it's nice to see the screenplay recognized. 
because it's gone through so many permutations over the decades. Yeah, definitely. So um, next we have best original screenplay. Yeah. Best original screenplay, not so much an embarrassment of riches <laughs> yeah. at, at the 1954 Academy Awards. I actually only ended up with four final choices because there was just no other fifth spot that I thought could be rightfully filled. Uh, so those four were The Barefoot Contessa, which I think is a very clever film. It's Again, I keep saying it's not a great film, and I really believe that. <laughs> but there is a lot of um, uh, really rich dialogue and... and uh, kind of almost like philosophical type satire, satirical insights. Uh, Gate of Hell, which is just a very thrilling narrative and it unfolds in a very dramatic way. Um, and it also kind of incorporates that, that period of Japanese history, as I was saying before. Genevieve, um, which is just fun. It's just like a fun little romp, right? It's, it's, it kind of almost reminded me of, it's kind of a strange comparison, but like just kind of Green Book. Where it's just maybe it's just because they're driving in a car for a lot of the movie, but um, it's yeah, it's just kind of one of those light, frivolous little films that that shouldn't work as well as it does, but it does work. Uh, and then finally, on the waterfront is my fourth spot. Nice. So um, my nominees are the Bigamist, Europe Fifty One. Genevieve on the waterfront and salt and the salt of the earth. If you didn't, um, for those who didn't, who don't know, the salt of the earth was um was this independent film made by a bunch of former industry veterans who had been blacklisted by Hollywood, and this is basically the response. You have Paul Jericho's producer and Herbert Braggerman is director and um largely um on professional cast. So it feels very authentic as a portrayal of unions and such. <laughs> That movie totally flew under my radar for this year, and I wonder if it's because people involved were blacklisted. So I'll have to catch up on that. Thank you. So next we have Best Supporting Actress. Okay, here we go. Best Supporting Actress. So my choices are Pearl Bailey for Carmen Jones, who I think just nails her big number uh, somewhat early on in the movie. Um, she's just like explodes like a force. Um, I think it's the banging the drum song. Incredible, incredible, incredible performer Pearl Bailey was. And it's remarkable that we got to capture her perform in Carmen Jones. So for sure a nomination for me. Uh, Nina Falk in Executive Suites, who I th it's it's she was she got the Oscar nomination and it's it's one of those performances that could so easily be overlooked or underappreciated but she really does become the cynical uh disconnected attitude of the movie itself she she is that and it's one of those performances where it's not showy it's not big it's so self-contained 
that uh, it ends up like representing the entire film around her. Like she she captures everything that the film stands for. Incredible performance. Olga James in Carmen Jones, um, kind of the opposite of Pearl Bailey, where Pearl Bailey has kind of just like this big showpiece um, in the film. Uh, Olga Jones, um, Olga James, my apologies. Um, her, not to say she isn't showy, but she gets a lot more of like the deeply felt emotions. She kind of has that one song near the end where she kind of realizes that Harry Belafonte's character um, has left her, has forsaken her. Um, and it's, it's, it's a really, um, I think it's the most emotional performance of the whole film, actually. She, she gets the emotional weight and she really uh, is effective. Mercedes McCambridge and Johnny Guitar uh, is such a bold performance. It's like a very acidic type of performance. She's she's like ruthless, and I hate the word like or the phrase like strong female character, but she kind of is that. And especially for the time period, like there's one scene where she's kind of um, interrupted Joan Crawford at Vienna's saloon, and there's like Mercedes McCambridge in the front and just like a sea of lawmen behind her, and yeah, just a strong female character. She she is that. She is strong. She is strength. She is leadership. She is intimidation. Mercedes McCambridge, Johnny Guitar. And then um, also got the Oscar nomination, uh, Jan Sterling in The High and the Mighty, who I just love as an actress to begin with. And The High and the Mighty, for sure, for sure, for sure, for sure, is not a great film. It definitely birthed an entire genre, and that's worth commenting on. Uh, but it's not a great movie, but it is a great performance in that movie. She, like Olga James, kind of gets the emotional stuff. She gets, she is the feeling <laughs> in the movie. And uh, you feel it. You really feel it. The scene where she takes off her makeup and is kind of just like, I'm not worthy. I'm not, I have no worth. I have no value. Um, it's a very powerful moment. Those are my five. Nice. Those are all great picks. Um, for my nominees, I went with June Allison in the Glenn Miller story, Mercedes McCambridge in Johnny Guitar, Eva Marie Saint in On the Waterfront, Grace Kelly in Rear Window, and Delmo Ritter in Rear Window. So next we have best supporting. Um. Oh, first off, did you have any thoughts on my nominees? Oh, um. So for supporting actor, um, next we have supporting actor. Excellent. First of all, I just want to say I love your lineup for Best Supporting Actress. Uh, I couldn't find room for Thelma Ritter or Eva Marie Saint, which just felt so wrong. Um, it was, a, again, an embarrassment of riches, like adapted screenplay. There was just so yeah. many good Supporting Actress performances from this year. Um, I'm just trying to pull up my shortlist to see um, uh, some of the other names that uh, could have been on there. Um, Yeah, like Katie Gerardo in Broken Lance, I thought was also great, even though um, 
Broken Lance might not be a perfect movie, and her her nomination might have been a bit like of a over like a, a compensation for missing High Noon, but I thought she was still great in that movie as like the wife role, um, and also um, also from Executive Suite, Barbara Stanwyck I thought was incredible in uh, Executive Suite. So yeah, just a really strong year for that category. But we're doing Best Supporting Actor, and my five are, and this is going to be controversial, my first choice, because this person ended up in lead at the Oscars, Humphrey Bogart in The Cane Mutiny. It's a supporting performance. It's totally a supporting role. Um, I'll say more about that later. Uh, Lee Jacob in On the Waterfront. Carl Malden in On the Waterfront. Both um, so different in the same film. I think Lee J. Cobb is one of the best villain performances um, ever, maybe. Uh, he's very terrifying in, in that film. And Carl Malden, just the exact opposite. He's just like goodness, right? It's like total polar opposites, both of those actors. There's the full evil and there's the full, full good. And uh, the way they embody those roles both is very um, meaningful. Uh, rounding it out, uh, James Mason in 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, which I just love that performance so much. It's it's one of, it's kind of like similar to Nina Falk in uh, Executive Suite, where it's really easy to not appreciate what that actor is doing. And what's so interesting about it is he's a villain, his character's a villain, but we don't really know he's the villain until kind of later on like we we suspect there's something sinister or off about him but we ne he never really becomes the villain until fully on into the narrative um and he's also kind of responsible for a lot of exposition like he explains a lot to us so it's this really complicated role of i'm kind of a not necessarily a storyteller but he is a teller of of things to us and he's also kind of this ambiguous, can you trust me? Maybe, maybe not. And just totally charismatic throughout all of those different elements. I just love that performance, James Mason in 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. And then rounding it out, Frederick March in Executive Suite. Um, I just think that's a, a brilliant performance. It's Frederick March did so many great things in his career. And I think uh, Executive Suite is probably one of his most honest, which is saying a lot because he has best years of our lives on his resume. But it's one of his most honest and tender and just very lived in performances. I love that. I love that role. Yeah, absolutely. Um, those were all um, solid choices. Um, I went with Van Johnson in the Candy Mutiny. Carl Malden in On the Waterfront, Lee J. Cobb in On the Waterfront, Rod Steiger in On the Waterfront, and William Holden in Sabrina. Can I just say that you could have a whole Best Supporting Actor category of just actors from the Kane Mutiny? Yeah. Um, <laughs> definitely. Like Bogart and Johnson and Ferrer and yeah. Um, McMurray. Yeah, Jose Ferrer is, was so close to being in my lineup. And, oh, sorry. You go ahead. No, I was just going to say, if you're at the Academy, then Tom Tolley has a place in your lineup, too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so next, we have Best Living Actress. 
Best Leading Actress. Um, yeah, I just want to, I know I've said this like a couple times already, but the two actresses from The Divided Heart, Cornell Borchers and Yvonne Mitchell, totally should have had supremacy if the Academy had their uh, eligibility rules different. Uh, they did both win the BAFTAs. So it just feels wrong to talk about 1954 actresses without mentioning them, because I thought they were uh, extraordinary. But the five that I did choose um, were Brenda DeBanzi in Hobson's Choice. Um, she is, goes toe-to-toe -to -toe with Charles Lawton and steals his thunder. Not even almost. She steals it. She is, she is the film. She is Hobson's Choice. She is... She is cunning, she is eloquent, she is uh, charismatic, um, she has like an acid tongue almost, like she's almost like scolding you with everything she says. Um, yeah, I love, I love her work in that. Joan Crawford in Johnny Guitar. I mean, I feel like next to Mildred Pierce, this might be the quintessential Joan Crawford performance with just her steely eyes. And there's a lot of feminism in the film, uh, purposefully. And, and Joan Crawford is, is ready to, uh, to live up to those ideals. You know, she embodies those feminist ideals that are represented in the film. Danielle Daria in The Earrings of Madame De. Again, that's another performance that I feel could have been so easily underappreciated. It could have been a hysterical performance. It could have been, it could have been a lot of things other than what it was. But it ends up being very restrained very restrained, sorry, um, very emotional without being um, over the top about it. Like it's very, um, not like internalized emotions, but very um, subtle emotion. She goes through a lot in that movie, uh, her character with like her various affairs and her, her lies. She's kind of a liar, but we don't really see her acting as a liar because she just, she just lives that character so, so genuinely. Um, yeah, I think it's a really, a really complex performance, actually. It's a really complex performance. She she balances a lot of moving parts. Um, Bridget Fossey in Forbidden Games, who Bridget Fossey walked in Forbidden Games so that you know uh, Vic, uh, Victoire Thivisol and Ponette could run. It's just a achingly beautiful performance. Her the honesty in her eyes. Um, the way her tears swell. Um, she's a child who is faced with the death of her parents and the, the confusion she's experiencing, the, um, the, uh, the inclinations toward death. It's such a beautiful performance that's so beyond what a child should be capable of, but somehow Bridget Fossey finds it and just like mines all the feeling out of it. It's incredible. And then, me and the Academy share this nomination, <gasps> Judy Garland in A Star is Born, which is just like the quintessential Best Actress performance. She does everything in that movie. She does everything. She sings. She emotes. It's, it's, it's the masterclass in performance. Those are my five. Yeah, those are all great choices. Um, so for my five, I went with Dorothy Dandridge and Carmen Jones, Ingrid Bergman in Europe 51, Joan, Groff, uh, Joan Crawford, Johnny Guitar, Jane Wyman in Magnificent Obsession, 
and Judy Garland in The Star is Born. I love that you had room for Dorothy Dandridge. That was one that I sadly did not have room for, but I love that performance. Yeah. Um, did you include Ingrid Bergman? No, you know what? I didn't see her at 51. I I would have had Ingrid Bergman for Journey to Italy if if that film had been Oscar eligible that year. Uh, I believe it's Oscar eligible the next year. Yeah. Um, yeah, I look forward to seeing that film, and your one is really good, and she's excellent as always. Yeah. Well, aside from like from vocals, but whatever. <laughs> well. Um. So next we have best leading actor. Best leading actor. Um. Yeah. Here we go. My five. <laughs> Marlon Brando in On the Waterfront. I mean, goes without saying. It's kind of like cliche to say it changed acting, or at least I think it changed the way males can be portrayed on screen. He's emotional. He's tender. He's vulnerable. He like is is all the things that we were taught masculinity could not be in film up until then. But he somehow still manages to never threaten those ideas of masculinity. If that makes any sense like he is he's still masculine while also being this like vulnerable in pain person it's it's revolutionary it's it's a tremendous piece of work charles lawton in hobson's choice uh again he goes up against brenda de and and he holds his own which is kind of funny to say because you think it'd be the other way around but he's he's kind of like very buffoonish and very fun and very almost like body and over the top and uh but it never feels like those things because it's charles lawton and he enunciates so clearly and he's um so grounded so yeah that's a really fun fun performance from him james mason in a star is born who was a double nominee for me in 1954. um he he goes through a lot in that movie in a very um in a very interesting way. He, you, you don't really start off well, I don't know, I guess it depends on who you are. He's he's not necessarily a sympathetic person, uh, but we do weep for him at the end, you know? Like he kind of he really um he really nails the the arc of that character and just the way he kind of descends into mental illness, really. Um it's a very um very um profound piece of work actually i'd say because we don't expect it we don't expect it to become that wrenching by the end of the film and it does because of because of what he and judy garland do together and then uh the final one is uh a lot of overlap i'm noticing between best actor and best actress i have a lot of pairs uh in those categories so the other one is charles boyer in the earrings of madame de and I think what's really fun about the earrings of Madame De is that it's, it's not the movie's not about her earrings, right? The movie's like really about a marriage in crisis. I don't even if you want to call it a crisis because it's almost like past the crisis point where they're just like unhappy with each other more or less. Um, yeah, and I think what makes the movie work so well is that like Charles Boyer and uh, Danielle Dario, they do have this really um, wonderful chemistry together, and like we. You feel their um, their lived experience together, you know, like you can feel their shared history. Um, and I just love what Charles Boyer goes through with through that film where you, you kind of think he has the upper hand at first, 
where he's the one having the affair and he kind of figures out what's going on with the earrings. And then by the end, that that balance has totally thrown off for the both of them. So I think that's a, a really uh, remarkable piece of work as well from Charles Boyer. So those are my five. Nice. Um, so my nominees are um, Bing Crosby and the Country Girl, Jack Lemmon and It Should Happen to You, Marlon Brando and On the Waterfront, James Mason and The Stars Born, and James Stewart in Rear Window. I also realized I missed one of my nominations, and that is uh, Dan O'Harely in Robinson Crusoe. Uh, Which I think is an underrated performance. I think it's an underrated performance because it's a physical performance. He goes through a lot physically in that movie, and I think that's worth uh, praising. Yeah, definitely. Um... So next we have Best Director. Best Director. An embarrassment of riches, again. I feel like there's a few categories in 1954 where it's just like, you, you could close your eyes and choose any random five off your short list and it'd be strong. The five I landed on are René Clément for Forbidden Games, which is just an incredible piece of work. It's such like, I, I, it's like one of those essential art house movies where it's it's all feeling, it's all... It's all honest emotion. It's not so much about the the technical things, the technical wizardry that's going on. It's just like pure heart. And Rene Clément really uh, brings that out of the material. Alfred Hitchcock for Rear Window, master of suspense, masterful piece of filmmaking. It's masterful. It's just masterfully constructed. I don't know where you'd even begin, so I won't. Um, Elia Kazan for On the Waterfront. Uh, Max, I'm going to say this wrong, probably, Max Ofu uh, for The Earrings of Madame De. Again, just the way everything weaves together in that film is, is uh, technical wizardry. <laughs> and uh, Robert Weiss for Executive Suite. And I really love that nomination uh, because I think ex Executive Suite, kind of what I was saying about a few of those performances that could have been easily underappreciated, like Nina Falk in Executive Suite. Um, it's uh that movie comes together so well because of the singularity of his vision and i don't think if he was as singular if he was as focused on his vision that that film would have worked as well as it did but he knew exactly what he wanted and he knew exactly what elements were necessary to to make it happen and he did it's just like a perfect vision perfectly realized Nice. Um, so my nominees are Rene Clement for Forbidden Games, Nicholas Ray for Johnny Qatar, Elia Kazan for On the Waterfront, Alfred Hitchcock for Rear Window, and George Cukor for Stars Born. Love the George Cukor representation. And I'm very grateful you found room for Nicholas Ray, because that is also one <laughs> that I could not find room for, but really wanted to. Yeah. 
Um, so next we have the big one, um, best picture. Best picture. My best picture almost reads like a best international film <laughs> category. Um, so my five, and they're very similar to my director five, they are The Earrings of Madame De, Forbidden Games, Gate of Hell, those are the three international films, uh, rounded out with On the Waterfront and Rear Window. And I've already talked about those films throughout our time together, so I'm, you might be able to piece why they were chosen for the top Best Picture five. Yeah. All great films. Great, great films. And my nominees are Forbidden Games, Johnny Guitar, On the Waterfront, Rear Window, and A Star is Born. <sighs> so, yeah, this is an exciting list of nominees. There's just so many great films. <laughs> it really is an embarrassment of Richard. So now it's time to announce our winners. Starting back with special effects oh. and ending with picture. And um, as usual, the um, guest goes first, announcing winners. Cool, you might have to help me out with this. So. Do you want me to just say all of my winners, or are we going um, back? I'll take turns announcing winners if it gets going first. Perfect. Yeah, so uh, best special effects. For me, it's 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. Them has really wonderful ant effects, uh, but 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea is just on a totally higher plane for me. Especially that squid sequence. The giant squid sequence thrilled me in a way that I couldn't imagine possible for a film from 1954. Uh, so 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, for sure. And my choice is also 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. It's unanimous. And next we have Best Film Editing. Best film editing. This might seem like a strange choice, but my winner is The Vanishing Prairie. And I say that because it took really, um, uh, un I don't want to call it unremarkable because it is remarkable the fact that they were able to capture these things in the first place. But they took all of these unremarkable, isolated, separate shots and they stitched them together to create this really thrilling, fun little story about the prairie. It's really, uh, it kind of reminds me of the Summer of Soul, actually, if I could compare it to anything. It's like similar to what was accomplished in the Summer of Soul. Right, nice. Um, so, yeah, um, you mentioned Summer of Soul. The editing is just magnetic and tight. And yeah, it's brilliant and a stroke of genius. Um, so for film editing in 1954, I went with Rear Window. Great choice. Yeah, I feel like the the editing was crucial to that film. 
So next we have best makeup and hairstyling. Best makeup and hairstyling. My winner is on the waterfront. Um, yeah, I think just the way each character is brought to life, the way the um, uh, like the physical experiences of the character are represented through the makeup gets my gets my vote. And my um, vote for best makeup. I thought it was gonna. I just have to go with the stars born. That's a really good choice. I wish I had thought about that, and uh, I can't remember what other nominee you had. You had a really other great nominee choice there. Stars born and Robinson Crusoe, I believe. Those are really great choices. So. And next we have best sound. Best sound for me, uh, from my nominees, the winner is 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. There's a lot of different sounds that happen in that movie. Underwater there's sound, above land there's sound, all the different creatures and um, uh, mechanics. It's a very, um, it's a lush soundscape and uh, it adds to the thrill of the film. Definitely. Um, and my choice I went was on the waterfront. So next we have best costume design. Best costume design. Uh, for me, for my for my nominees, I would just like to just shout out to Seven Brides for Seven Brothers because they really did a great job with that, I thought. But the ultimate winner is Gate of Hell, which I believe also won the Oscar. So many variety of costumes, the way, the, the color that the costumes are brought to life with. Incredible, incredible uh, uh, evocation of, of that period. Definitely. Um, my winner is the Aries Madam. It's hard to describe, but I just feel like this is such an achievement in costumes. Yeah. I like how you reference Greta Garbo uh, in regards to that film, because that totally checks out. So next we have best art direction. Best art direction from my nominees, the ultimate winner is, sorry, I just lost it, is uh, Rear Window. I think the, the devil is in the details. It's a simple little set. Uh, we get like an apartment face and a few apartment interiors and it's genius. <laughs> it, it serves all the purposes that any filmmaker could who is as daring and visionary as Alfred Hitchcock uh, could realize. Yeah, I think it's one of those art direction, or one of those art direction choices that, yeah, just 
the simpler, the more powerful, you know, there's power in simplicity. And we're on our direction, right? Sorry. Um, which one are we on? Art direction. Okay. Um, my winner is Sabrina. I just feel like it's, uh, even though it may not be obviously striking or flashy as others in this category, I feel like it's just the most effective of the five. It's a very stylish movie in every way. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so next we have best um the cinematography category. So you have just one, so why don't you announce yours? Yeah, so my combined best color and black and white cinematography winner goes to uh Gate of Hell. Again, just a really stunning film to look at. Um, yeah, I love how brightly it's, it's shot and how vivid the colors are and, and how that aids the storytelling. And my winners for best cinematography for color, I have rear window. And for black and white, I have um, on the waterfront. Um, yeah, um, career window speaks for itself. Like Alfred Hitchcock, Robert Brooks, their use of color is extraordinary. And um, on the waterfront, that movie cinematography is also extraordinary. On the waterfront is a very striking movie. Yeah, definitely. And it's visual, yeah, yeah. So next we have best original song. Best original song, it's a no-brainer, The Man That Got Away. Go listen to it, <laughs> and you'll understand. It's a tour de force. It's brilliant. I love that song. And my, my winner is also The Man That Got Away. Yeah, it's a no-brainer. You've all heard of it. Go check it out again. It's worth it. It's such a powerful build, you know? Like, it starts off so, yeah, like, contained, and then it just, like, swells. Ugh. Yeah. Um, so next we have Best Original Score. Best Original Score. This one was actually really tricky for me because there's a lot of ones that fit the bill, and I ultimately landed on Forbidden Games. And I guess I, uh, I have a bit of a theme going on where, like, simplicity rules. And I think Forbidden Games is the most simple 
I don't think that's fair to say, but but it's 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 the most it's the least complex score, you know. It's just like that really simple guitar melody, and it's so evocative and effective. Um, so it's ultimately my winner. Just the way that such a simple melody played authentically on a on a evocative instrument, the way that has consequences throughout the film emotionally. It's it's really remarkable that that was accomplished. Yeah, it definitely was. Um... Um, my winner is Johnny Guitar. I just feel like that has the most unique um, motifs uh, of all the nominees I picked. And for a cartoon short film, um, my winner was Win with Flu. Um, so we're now into the international film. International film. I did not. I did not do a, a, a distinct international film category. But if I can share your nominees, I'm choosing La Strada. Nice. Yeah. What a film. Mm. And uh, my winner is Seven Samurai. Um. I really love and respect Seven Samurai, but something about the ending of La Strada really just seals the deal for me. Just how raw that movie gets. And painful. You know? Yeah. Seven Samurai. Definitely. Fantastic choice, too. Um, so next one, Best Adapted Screenplay. Best Adapted Screenplay for my nominees. The winner is Johnny Guitar. I think, um, that, what, I think what I like about that film in, from a screenplay context is, is, um, like the dialogue, just the way the dialogue unfolds. And, and there's such a rich history that the characters share and and it unfolds very organically through the dialogue you know like a lesser movie might have given us like a flashback of like oh remember five years ago when these characters had this different relationship together uh, but we never get that it's kind of everything's just very organically alluded to and organically unfolds from the dialogue which largely is owing to the writing so that's my choice yeah um yeah, that's a really good choice. Um, my choice, I went with A Star Is Born. Which is just um, a near-perfect reinterpretation of the original source. Um, next, we're, um, next, we have Best Original Screenplay. My choice for best original screenplay from my nominations is On the Waterfront. Somewhat of a predictable choice, but the way that movie is plotted is so powerful, you know? Like, yeah, like it starts off with this major dramatic incident where um, Eva Marie Saint's character's brother is murdered, and 
we just kind of have all this drama that stems from that and it's it's incredibly well written you know it takes good writing to have a drama unfold um in that way and 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 it ends up becoming so intense right like everything just kind of we have that initial inciting incident and everything just keeps growing and growing and growing and the stakes keep rising and rising and rising right up until the final confrontation between Marlon Brando and Lee J Cobb um brilliant 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 writing Definitely. Um, and my one is also on waterfronts. It's the most obvious choice. Um, so yeah. Next we have Best Supporting Actress. Oh boy, yeah. So it's an embarrassment of riches, this category. And as such, I kept wavering on on my choice. I've I ultimately landed on and ask me tomorrow and I might say something different. But for me, it's it's Jan Sterling and the High and the Mighty. And it's a it's not a good movie. I acknowledge this. It's it's not it's not a poor movie, but it's not a great movie. It's not particularly good, you know? Um but what Jan Sterling does is so powerful and it's almost made even more powerful because what's happening around her is not as strong as she is, you know? Um, she was my favorite part also in uh, Ace in the Hole, uh, Billy Wilder's Ace in the Hole from 1951. Um, she just has presence and gravitas and like when she speaks, it's like, it's like she's speaking with like hundreds of years of lived experience that's, that's, that's like manifesting through her. Um, it's, yeah, and I had referenced before, there's a scene where she like takes off her makeup, she's going to meet some man, that's why she's on the airplane, and, and she doesn't actually believe she's beautiful, and she kind of removes her makeup, and it's just so powerful, and it's so, and I think maybe what does help the performance is that she's not in a good movie, <laughs> so she is, she ends up being like the the the, the showpiece easily, um, and I just can't ignore it, I, it's one of those films I can't, or it's one of those performances I can't stop thinking about. Um, because her work is so, so strong. Yeah. Um, my winner is Grace Kelly in Rear Window. She just takes up a baton, runs with it. Everything about her presence is just, is just sensual. I just love her energy. And she's better in this than she is in the country, though. So there you have it, folks. <laughs> that's funny because that's true. Um. So next we have best supporting actor. Yeah, best supporting actor. So from the from my nominations, my winner is sorry to the Academy. It's Humphrey Bogart in the Kane Mutiny. I would just like to defend this, saying it is a supporting performance. His character does not show up into the movie until at least 20 minutes into it. Um, and he's not portrayed as the lead. He's kind of the supporting character who, uh, whose behavior has consequences on, on the group of leads around him. And uh, he disappears for like at least another 20 minutes to half an hour around the hour mark of the film once the action moves off of the ship, um, off of the cane. Um, 
Yeah, it's it's a supporting performance, and I think it almost works better as a supporting performance than it does as a lead performance, because he's just kind of like this hot-headed, um, out-of-control uh, captain, and his final freakout in the courtroom at the end, when he's on, on trial, if you can call it a courtroom, I don't know what the military equivalent of that would be. Um, yeah, I, I, it's, 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 it's a volatile performance, it's almost like a, like a, not like a baby, but you know what I mean? Like he's almost like a kid having a tantrum, and uh, it's just it's just a really um, juicy supporting role. I think it becomes juicier when you view it within the context of supporting. So that's my choice. Um, I was on mute. Um, uh, what, what did I last say? We're on Best Supporting Actor? Yeah, um, my Best Supporting Actor, my winner is Lee J. Cobb and all the waterparks. It's one of the greatest villain performances of all time. I don't think there's much more I could add to that. It's um, fairly towering, yeah. So next we have Best Leading Actress. Yeah, best leading actress. This was another tough one for me, um, because there's so many um, different types of performance. Like we get kind of like small internalized performances and kind of more like acidic dialogue based performances. But at the end of the day, it's the performancey performance that wins, and that's Judy Garland in *A Star Is Born*. She is a true show person. She performs the heck out of that role. Um, every single musical number, she goes all out. Her voice is brass and full and energetic, and she has incredible emotional arcs to to honor and to bring to life. And she does so devastatingly. It, it's 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 the work of a showman, you know, of a, of a show of a show woman. Easily Judy Garland. Nice. Um, so, um, my winner is Judy Garland in Stars Born. This is a true example of, um, It's just the right performance at the right time, the right role at the right time. Everything about it is just incredible. Um, so yeah, Judy Garland and the Stars Born, maybe the best performance of 1954. I don't think that's a stretch by any means. Though my best actor winner might have something to say about that.
Oh, yes. Um, so let's move on to that. Best actor. Yeah, for me, it's Marlon Brando in On the Waterfront. And yeah, it's all the reasons I said when I was going through my nominees. It's he changed the way masculinity could be portrayed on screen. You know, it's never before that performance has a male being that vulnerable, that tender, that emotional, like even just that emotional, you know, like um, men weren't allowed to be like emotional sad boys <laughs> before, um, but in a way that never threatens what we understand masculinity to be in a 1954 perspective. Um, yeah, just an incredibly audacious and brave and revolutionary performance for me. Marlon Brando. And he's hot. There's also that. What's yours? Um, my winner is also Marlon Brando and on the waterfronts. I don't think I could dispute this. It's one of the great, it's another one of the all-time great performances. Yeah, two all-timers in 1954. That's pretty cool. And next we have Best Director. Again, an embarrassment of riches, but for me, it ultimately comes down to one master of suspense, and that's Alfred Hitchcock for Rear Window. Um, yeah, he, he does a lot with a very simple premise. He makes all the right choices. He does all the right camera movements, all the right editing selections, uh, everything involved in the pre-production. It's just a masterful vision and, and no one else could have made that film. The, uh, the thrill ride that it is a man alone in his apartment staring out windows he turned that into one of the most thrilling uh pieces of movie making that at least that decade if not of all time and my winner um i had to go with the basic choice ellie kazan and on the waterfront Probably his best film, either that or Streetcar Named Desire. Um, there's still some films of his I need to see, but he really is like one of those great directors of actors, setting scene. I mean, as a per as a person, he sucks because he's garbage for a lot of reasons, but. In terms of his directorial works, top notch. Um, so the big one, best picture. Best picture. This was a tough one because you could literally just like close your eyes and with a finger choose any of the five of my nominees and i'd say yep that's a great choice for the best picture winner of 1954 um and so for me and maybe just to reveal my own personal bias 
this is the film I've seen the most times, so I wonder if if I had rewatched some more of these nominations or some more of these nominees, if I rewatched them, if if maybe they'd go up uh, in my personal rankings. But for me, it's on the waterfront. I know it's a a, a basic choice, um, but the the power of that film, you know, it's um there's this the the storytelling is rich. The performances across the board. It got five Oscar nominations for its acting, and it deserved all of them. Um, the way everything, the, the script, what we were saying before, just the way it, the the stakes keep rising and rising and rising. And there's also a bit of like commentary there too, right? About um, oppression and about the big guy being a bully for the little guy and. And I don't know what was actually happening on the docks in that time, but it was probably very relevant, um, both uh, literally and metaphorically, you know, like, it's this really um, relevant story of an underdog going up against a system that's working against him. And it's it's told with so much urgency and sincerity and, and, and technical prowess, you know, it's uh, one of the... <laughs> you can, it's one of the best movies ever made, I'd say. Um, and easily the best picture of 1954. And I have to agree with all that. It's also my um, choice for the best film of the year on the waterfronts. Um, sometimes icon statuses for movies are reserved, and this is one of those cases. Totally deserves its icon status. Yeah. So yeah, on the waterfront, best movie of nineteen fifty four. Easily. Um. So since it, um, did win real be- win best picture in real life, did we want to talk? Um, would you like to talk instead about another highly contentious race? Let's best actress Grace Kelly defeating Judy Garland. A shame. (laughs) Yeah. In the context of everything that happened, I get why it happens. Um I guess. And Grace Kelly was like this rising star who I had yeah. Three hit movies for Paramount, two yeah. of which were directed by Hitchcock. Um, yeah. Judy Garland um, kind of was suffering a blowback in terms of um, reputation. She was like labeled as difficult to work with, was going through a lot of problems. Yeah. And, and there is something to be said about um how hollywood values the young ingenue and uh that absolutely was not what judy garland was in 1954 but grace kelly very much was the young hot thing in hollywood in 1954 and it's yeah it's kind of gross actually that the academy does that or has a history of doing that it almost reminds me of jennifer lawrence winning in 2012 you know, where um, Emmanuel Riva could have totally won, or someone a little... Well, I guess there was a lot of ingenues in, in 2012 as well, with uh, Quivenzene Wallace and um, Jessica Chastain kind of just emerging. 
but um yeah it's it's um it feels like a cop-out choice right like it, it feels more about the actor than it does about the performance with grace kelly's win yeah And where would you rank Grace Kelly out of out of the five? Um, last. <laughs> I don't even think she's bad. It's just compared to the others. Yeah, and it it does it kind of borderlines on being a one note performance. You know, like she's just kind of sad girl the whole time, like sad hot girl. Yeah, it's definitely a performance meant to showcase. Um. That she's more than just like this sex symbol. Yeah, yeah. Which is probably why they went for it, right? Like, oh, look, here's a semblance of of um, variety or of uh, you know of what her skill set could be. You know, she's acting against type. Yeah, it's too bad. Uh... Because I I think not only Judy Garland deserves to win, but I think Dorothy Dandridge also would have made a much better choice. Than Grace Kelly. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Um. So um, let's just go through the questions. Um. For sure. Um. So for this is from Emily Blakowski Malik, in your opinion. What are the best two seconds of films from 1954? The best two seconds? Yeah. Okay. You want me to go first? Yeah, go ahead. Okay. Can I can I give two answers or are you gonna make me to choose one? Go ahead and do two. Okay. So first one's easy. It's when Judy Garland sings The Man That Got Away in A Star is Born. But uh if I could choose another one. It's it's the waltz sequence in the earrings of Madame de, and yeah, when she's waltzing with her Italian lover, and or he's not her lover yet, but they're falling in love through that waltz, and just the music, and the way the camera moves, and the way the actors are looking at each other, I think it's one of the most magical two seconds of 1954. Yeah, that's my answer. And um, I'll just go with any two seconds from the man that got away. That's truly an iconic moment. That's a really great question. There's a lot of there's a lot of films that are coming. There's a lot of moments that are coming to mind now. But yeah, yeah. Um, this is from Therefore I Review. How overrated is on How overrated is on the waterfront? And was Rear Window really the star film of the year? I think On the Waterfront is perfectly rated, um, but I don't think that is to say that its competition or films that should have been its competition weren't also deserving of being rated in the same way. Yeah, so I think Rear Window absolutely stands toe-to-toe -to -toe with On the Waterfront, which is why I give them director-picture split. Um, yeah, definitely. I just think overall Rear On the Waterfront... And maybe this is just a personal thing for me, but I think a best picture winner, there should be some sort of broadness to it, you know? Like there should be some universality to to the story or to, to the emotions that it's containing. 
so that's kind of why I go on the waterfront, just because it's almost bigger than the movie itself. Whereas Rear Window really is just this like really self-contained, really tightly woven uh, cinematic experience. Definitely. Um, I'll just go sign up for you say. Um, That's a good question, though. This is from Emily. What's your favorite costume from this year? Um, do you think Kazan ever realized how hypocritical, how, how hypocritical his film made him look? Or do you think he always saw himself as Brando's character? Speaking of what, uh, of, what does Peter pick for Brando's first Oscar? Oh my, okay. So what was the first part of that question? My favorite costume? Yeah, favorite costume from this year. Is it bad that I only have, maybe it's just because we're talking about it too much, but I'm thinking of what Judy Garland is wearing when she sings The Man That Got Away. She's kind of in like that blue, like, tiny dress with like the white collar. But here's my true answer, actually. My favorite costume is, um, is Marlon Brando's uh, plaid jacket in On the Waterfront. I love that jacket for some reason, and I've I've bought myself my own version of that coat. Awesome. How about you? Favorite costume? Um, basically the gowns from the Aliens of Adam B. I should say that because I gave to the Oscar. Yeah, that's a fun question too. Yeah. 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 Um. And about Kazan and his hypocrisy. Yeah. Did you think that he saw himself as Brando's character? I mean, probably. <laughs> right? Probably. Like, I'm not, I, 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 I try to separate the art from the artist, and I know there's a lot of controversy around that, and there's a lot of nuance to that stance, separating the art from the artist. Um, but I, I do believe that any director, I think it's reasonable to assume, has a big ego <laughs> and a, a, a hot head, or not a hot head, but a big head. Um, so absolutely, I believe Aaliyah Kazan probably saw himself as the Brando savior, you know? Yeah, definitely. He's not going to be self-reflective enough <laughs> to be like, oh, maybe I didn't do great things. No. Um, and then, um, would this be your pick for Brando's first Oscar? <sighs> Hard no. He wins earlier for me. Obviously, on the water, or not on the waterfront, a streetcar named Desire. Um, I easily give it to him for uh, for 1951, and I do love his work in Julius Caesar. And if he had been in the supporting category where he belonged, um, I, I he would have easily been my choice over Frank Sinatra. So, I'd say on the waterfront. If we go by Oscar nominations, then. At, at least my second for him. And if we go by my fantasy Oscars, it might even be his third win for me. How about you? Um, I would actually, in 1951, I'd actually go with Montgomery Clift in A Place in the Sun. True. Um, so this would be Brando's first Oscar for me. To be fair, this would also be like my final Oscar for Brando. <laughs> I would be not giving him anything for On the Water or The Godfather or Three Tang Last Tango in Paris. Um, yeah. His earlier work is much better than his later work for me. Um this is from Little Kiwi. Um thoughts on how Gojira 
Um, Isaac just wants to, us to share our thoughts on Godzilla. <gasps> I love Godzilla. I love everything about Godzilla. Like, there's something about, like, yeah, like, it's, it was, <laughs> I, I, don't, I have no words. That's how much I love Godzilla. Just the way, like, the, the way the miniatures are used, you know, it's, I don't think I'd ever seen anything like Godzilla before. And it, what's so remarkable about it is, is that was 1954. And we know exactly how they achieved those things, you know, with the miniatures and, like, the man in the costume and, and all the ways they, they made those shots work. But it, it just unfolds so thrillingly in the pacing. Like, there's one scene that kind of, like, nighttime where, like, Godzilla's, like, on, like, collapsing the wires or something like that. I don't quite recall, like, at some power plant or something. I might be remembering it wrong. And it's it's just, like, stunning to see how they did that. I really love, um, in general, seeing people who are good at what they do, you know? Um, or hearing people talk when they know what they're talking about, like people who are experts, hearing experts talk, watching experts do their thing, and watching Godzilla is like watching experts. That's kind yeah. of what to say, yeah. Yeah, I think everything you say is on the point. Yeah. I loved Godzilla. It's it's easily in my top five if if it counts for Oscar nominations. For Oscar eligibility. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think that was all the questions we have. Um, do you have any final thoughts on this year as a whole? Yeah, it's just one of my favorite years. It's, I think there's a lot of all-timers, performance-wise and, and movie-wise. I think the 50s are a weird decade in the sense that... Um, America kind of like plateaued after the war in the sense that like they like there was a, a, a craving for stability, you know, the nuclear family and um, kind of a lot of dull art came out because of that. Um, like those MGM musicals that are very like kind of bland and lack personality, but are, are meant to like be just like broad pieces of entertainment. Um, Oklahoma. Like Oklahoma, <laughs> yeah. Like, uh, uh, like, um, it's not an MGM musical, but like Around the World in 80 Days or The Greatest Show on Earth, you know? Like, these very bland spectacles that were very pleasing to, like, very uh, nuclear, you know, attitudes at the time. Um, but 1954 kind of escapes that, you know? There's a lot of rich, rich filmmaking that happened in 1954. And, like, from abroad, too, right? Like, the international films that were represented in 1954. Um, Oscar eligibility and non-Oscar eligibility. It's a really rich, a really rich year, and one of the best of the fifties, I'd say. So thanks That's for having thing. me. Yeah. yeah. Um. Thank you for thank you so much for appearing on this podcast. Um. Um. How can we find you on like social media and such? Yeah, you can find me on Twitter at JB Likes Movies. Uh, with the name Classic Movie Gay. That's where you can find me. Right. Um, great. So um, you can find me um, on Twitter at Gabe Joker, on, on Instagram at Gabe Warren. Um, uh, you can find the Alternate Oscars Twitter page at Alternate Oscars. Um, I, also, um, I also have a Patreon account. 
Um, so be sure to rate and review this podcast for visibility's sake. And also, um, trying to remember, um, subscribe through your um, preferred choice of server. And until the next episode, sit back and relax, cheers and enjoy. And thank you for listening to the Alternate Oscars.